coming up on What Women Want to Know. I didn't check my breasts every day because it's never going to happen to me. Like most women, we do not check our breasts unless there's a case in the media. And I'll put my hands up. And I saw a lump in my left cleavage coming out the shower one day. And then I had an ultrasound and I turned to look at the screen because I do ultrasounds myself and I saw a cancer. I didn't need to wait for the biopsy and I knew it's big, I'm young. I'll need chemo, I'll need a mastectomy, good idea of what my 10 year survival is. And at that moment, it was like a light bulb switched off and it was happening to someone else. I'm your host, Dr. Adana, and this is What Women Want to Know. The show where we navigate the complex, fascinating, and sometimes intimidating world of women's health and well-being. Here, we create a safe, judgment-free space where no topics are off limits. We confront our fears, we embrace our vulnerabilities, and we find humor in the unexpected. Welcome to What Women Want to Know. Before we get into today's conversation, I want to personally invite you to join this growing community. If you've watched every episode until now, thank you for sticking around. And if you've just stumbled across us, welcome. If you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and turn on the notification so that you know when a new episode is live on the channel, which is every Sunday at 6 p.m. GMT. If you're listening on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts, please don't forget to follow along and give us a review. Your review helps more women to find us, women who need to be part of this conversation. On the show today, we're venturing back into the complex world of breast cancer, a topic that remains shrouded in uncertainty and fear for many women. Today's episode isn't merely a clinical discussion. It's a deep dive into the emotional, physical, and psychological experiences of those affected by this disease. It's a journey into the transformative power of sharing personal stories. From diagnosis and treatment options to the nuanced challenges of life during and after cancer. Our focus is not only on survival, but thriving. Understanding that even in life's toughest challenges, there are lessons, hope, and new beginnings. Our inspiring guest today is Dr. Liz Oriodon, a beacon of strength and a true embodiment of the power of resilience and purpose. As a retired breast surgeon whose career was unexpectedly cut short due to cancer, Dr. O'Riordan's unique perspective as both a doctor and a patient offers profound insights into the world of cancer care. Her journey through diagnosis, treatment, and finding a new purpose post-retirement is nothing short of awe-inspiring. Liz's candid discussions about the less talked about aspects of cancer, like sex, mortality, and life outside the hospital provide invaluable support and education to those navigating their breast cancer journey. Through her books, keynotes, and digital platform, Liz is not just sharing her story, she's changing the narrative of cancer care, highlighting that it's the little things that often matter the most. Join us as we delve into this deeply personal yet universally relevant journey with Dr. Liz Oriodan. What women want to know. Good to have you on the show today, Dr. Oriadon. Thanks for having me. So we're going to dive right into the conversation. I think the first thing I want to explore with you is your inspiration to become a breast surgeon. 
how did this early experience of your life really shape your decision to, to become a breast surgeon? It was actually quite late in my training. I knew the moment I went into medical school that I wanted to be a surgeon. My dad was a surgeon and I loved every speciality. And my first job was children's surgery and that was it. And then I did bowel and I loved that. And the first time I did breast surgery, it was kind of slash and grab. It was mastectomy, lumpectomy, cut down. It didn't really appeal. But I found surgical training really hard as a senior doctor. No life, writing of a PhD, I hated the on-call, I was ready to quit. And then I discovered breast surgery again when it changed and it was much more creative. We used plastic surgical techniques to recreate and reshape the breast. I also discovered there's no on-call. Your patients don't die on you. It's a nine to five job. There's no body fluid to worry about. Well, you're really selling this for people on the fence, by the way. <laughs> It's amazing. So a wise man said, you pick your speciality by the body fluid you mind the least. Now I get sweaty armpits once in a while, but the fact that every operation is different, it's creative, you tailor make it to every single woman. Yes, it's boring, there's no anatomy to forget because there's a big blue vein in the middle of the armpit, but that's about it. So it's relatively stress-free, but it meant I could do surgery and get my life back after 20 years of training. And I loved it. Wow, it's amazing. It's amazing. Well done. I mean, I know all too well about your journey here. And as a medic myself, I'm, I'm truly, truly inspired. I really want to talk about your personal journey through training as a breast surgeon and then being hit with that diagnosis yourself. Can you share the moment you first learned about your own breast cancer diagnosis and how that impacted you both personally and professionally? Yeah, well, I might take you back to when I was a registrar and I first found a breast lump. I was 36. My fiance at the time had just proposed and I found a lump and I was terrified. I remember screaming on the sofa at night, it's breast cancer, I'll be dead, who won't want to marry me, I'll be in a coffin, I can't wear a wedding dress, this whole histrionic slew of thoughts. And it kind of made me realize what patients are feeling when they come to see me. It was just a cyst, which are common in women in their 30s. And I'd had several cysts, and I'd actually had a cyst six months before I was diagnosed. I had a normal ultrasound, a normal mammogram. I didn't check my breasts every day because it's never gonna to happen to me. Like most women, we do not check our breasts unless there's a case in the media. And I'll put my hands up. And I saw a lump in my left cleavage coming out the shower one day. And my mum said, look, will you go and get it checked out? Because I was saying, it's nothing. I had a normal scan six months ago. And I went along and my mammogram was normal. I had very dense breasts. And then I had an ultrasound and I turned to look at the screen because I do ultrasounds myself and I saw a cancer. I didn't need to wait for the biopsy and I knew it's big, I'm young, I'll need chemo, I'll need a mastectomy, good idea of what my 10 year survival is. And at that moment, it was like a light bulb switched off and it was happening to someone else because I knew too much. I've looked after women who've died from breast cancer and all that knowledge in my head. And it was really hard working out what do I tell my husband and my mum and dad? Do they need to know at the moment? And what do I do with everything I had? Oh my God, I'm really, really sorry. I'm really sorry about that. I mean, you have gone through this, you've shared the story about this, but but still, yeah. I mean, even as a as a breast surgeon yourself, I, I don't know what prepares you for that moment. Nothing. We know we're told when we're telling someone bad news. They'll only remember like the first three things that you say. And we have so much information to give them. And when I was hearing that, when I went back for the biopsy results and my, my she was my friend and mentor. She trained me. She said, right, it's cancer. You literally forget everything else you're told. And when someone is going through a consent form, it's like, oh God, that's really scary. I could die from chemo. Oh my God, this is suddenly real. And you get what it's like to be in the patient's shoes where you really don't know anything. You've not been a patient before. 
what is chemo gonna be like? How do I make a decision about breast reconstruction? It was so much I didn't know, despite being an expert in breast cancer. You touched on being a patient yourself. Like you said, people only remember the first three things you say, you have cancer, and then there's that switch off. So how has experiencing it yourself really influenced your understanding of cancer care and how we could really take the patient along that journey from the moment you break that news. I was off for up to 18 months having chemotherapy, surgery, radiotherapy, and I went back to work for a year before I had a local recurrence. And a lot changed in that time. So I actually think I was a pretty good doctor. You are a pretty badass doctor. <laughs> I think I was. I actually had an email from a lady who found me on Twitter because I operated under my maiden name and she said, oh, you were lovely. I think, oh, thank you. When you go to tell someone they've got cancer, you've been in the MDT, you've been in that meeting, you know what's going to happen, you know the outcome, you've, you've been able to say, oh my God, this is awful. You're prepared to give that bad news and then a plan. But the patient has no idea what's coming. And we're under such time constraints. I used to get a 10 minute slot. You always overran because you didn't know it was going to be a cancer slot or not. And we go, right, it's cancer. And we go, we've got to do this and this and this and this and this. And I'd say, just sit and bite your tongue for 10 seconds and let that patient come up to where you are and let it sink in and let them say the first thing that comes into the head, whether it's, am I gonna die? Am I gonna lose my hair? Who's gonna look after my disabled daughter? Let them do that. And that will get them where you are and guide the rest of the consultation to talk about what is really important to them. But 10 seconds is a long time and it is the most uncomfortable silence you will ever have. But you've got to let it sink in. I suppose in this new perspective that you have from both sides, have you had this conversation with doctors, with surgeons who are still practicing? Yeah, I've spoken to kind of all over the UK to medical students, to trainee doctors, to consultants, just to let them know the things they might not be aware of. Now, they might not be able to change a lot of it. So it things like using the language. So I used to say, you know, it's lucky we caught it early and it's good it hasn't spread. I'm trying to be positive about this 80-year-old lady with a small breast cancer, but no one's lucky to get it and no cancer is good to have. And no matter how good you think it is as a surgeon, because you've seen everything, to that patient, it's still cancer. I used to tell patients radiotherapy was a bit like an x-ray and you might feel a bit tired. BS. I'd never seen a radiotherapy machine. I didn't realize you had to lie there with both arms above your head. I didn't realize how bone crushingly tired it could make you feel and how bad the side effects could be. And why is that? Because as a breast surgeon, when almost two thirds of my patients have radiotherapy, I'd never seen the machine. I'd never heard what my radiotherapy colleagues tell patients. I used to give my patients a little warning about what chemo was like. I never sat and listened to what my own oncologist was telling my patients. We aren't joined up. And even worse, I don't know what my breast care nurse says when I leave the room. Is she talking to them about diet and sex and exercise and work? Or is she just repeating everything I said because the patient's going, what's going on? I'm trying to fill that knowledge gap between what the doctors and nurses have time to tell the patient and what you're searching for on Google when you get home. Exactly. That is the power of leveraging platforms that we know most people turn to when they get such a scary diagnosis. I think the problem is you don't know who to trust. The YouTube health shelf, you know, we're done by doctors in the UK, but no one is monitoring and checking that what we say is accurate. I mean, I spend eight hours writing a script, referencing, checking it to make sure it's up to date, but you don't know people are doing that. It's like someone can say sugar causes cancer. They've got a million followers. Oh, that must be true. And it's really hard to get common sense, accurate information out to the general public. What women want to know.
Wow. I mean, I, I really just have to say thank you for the work that you're doing. You really have perspectives on both sides. So really well done and thank you. It's hard work, volunteering your time for free just to educate patients. It's just another way of helping people when I had to retire. Exactly. And I did read in the course of stalking you, as is very common with most medical professionals, right? We always start off with... I want to help people, really. A lot of people say that that's what really takes you into medicine is I want to help people and I don't know what other career I could do other than being a medic. And so you found a way to come back to it, right? It was really hard when my cancer came back the first time back in 2018. I didn't know my last operation was my last operation. It didn't go very well because I knew I was getting the biopsy results the next day. I just thought it was a nodule of scar tissue in my armpit, not a three centimetre recurrence. And I never went back to work. When you retire, you kind of think you know, partying cards and thank you and you know you'll be prepared. But it was like, no, I just went off on sick leave and that I was lost. Because for 20 years, I've identified myself as a breast surgeon. And now I'm a cancer patient who I sat at home with no hobbies, no friends, no nothing to do because your life has been surgery. And it took a good year to reset and readjust and think, what am I going to do with my time? And in answering that, you just casually wrote two books, did a million keynote speeches, you educated people. Well done. Well done, Liz, really. It all started... When a paediatric surgeon asked me to do a TEDx talk in Stuttgart because they were looking for women who could speak and he mentored one of my previous talks and it's just been word of mouth. Could you talk here? Could you do this? And it's just, it's like I've got the podcast so now I've got breast cancer because some people like to listen to information then YouTube because some people like to watch because I get so many questions and people share really heartbreaking stories with me and it's really hard when you're not their doctor. But instead of answering them personally, think, well, if I can do a little video about that, I can help more people. The year you got the first diagnosis, was that 2015? Yeah, I was 40. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Take us through the timeline of the treatment. So including yeah. surgery, chemo, radiotherapy. Sure. How long was that? When did you feel safe? And then how long was it until you got the recurrence then? So because I was young with a large cancer and premenopausal, I had chemotherapy first to try and shrink it down. Mm. So I had five months of chemo and I still chose to have a mastectomy and implant reconstruction because my boobs are small and the cancer was big. And I was expecting my post-op results to be great because my last MRI scan of the breast showed chemo had worked. There was no cancer left to find. But it turned out there was actually 13 centimeters of cancer left in my breast and three of my lymph nodes were positive which wasn't great doctors often have weird occult things so i had more surgery to remove my lymph nodes and then i had a three-month wait for radiotherapy because i couldn't get my arm above my head and then i was put on tamoxifen and injections to switch my ovaries off so about a year of treatment in total you never feel safe. For the first three, four years, I woke up every day thinking, is this the day it comes back? And you're dealing with the collateral damage of breast cancer treatment. Instant menopause, immediately infertile, can't have children. You've lost your hair, you've lost your ovaries, you've lost your sex drive, you've lost your libido, you're newly married. The chronic post-mastectomy pain syndrome that I told patients about but didn't realize how bad it could be, all of that. And people say, you look great, yet you can't see what's going on underneath the clothes and inside my head. I'd been having a nodule of scar tissue treated with physiotherapy just to try and get my arm moving because I'd had a frozen shoulder, which is common after auxiliary surgery. And about two and a half years after my first treatment, I was planning to have my implant removed because radiotherapy can turn it into a hard, tight, painful tennis ball, which has given me agony. But it turned out that was a three centimetre recurrence. So in 2018, I went flat. I had another round of radiotherapy and I was put on aromatase inhibitors. And that was really hard because if you've had one local recurrence, you're much more likely to get metastatic disease in the future. 
And I'd have wobbles when you get a cough and you think, I need an MRI because I'm convinced it's come back. But I think beginning of this year, it's, it's over five years since my second recurrence, I'm feeling all right. I'm not waking up every day thinking, is this the end? I think, well, maybe I'll actually go on to live a long, healthy life. Just got over the death of my mum, who had her arm amputated for a metastatic osteosarcoma and died five months later. And then I'd written a memoir. I wanted to tell my story as a female surgeon, how hard it is, what it's like going through training. And the day before my book came out, I was cycling in, the, in Italy and I saw a nodule on my chest wall and I knew it was another local recurrence. So I had surgery for that in July, and I'm now on treatment for life with bum injections and a very mild dose of chemo to stop it coming back a third time. I'm so sorry, Liz. Wow, like you've been through it. What were the emotional challenges that you faced, not just dealing with it the first time, but also dealing with it the second time and also just living in this constant uncertainty or paranoia? How, how did you cope with that? There's a lot of denial. Part of me thinks I haven't had breast cancer three times. Because I've seen people dying of breast cancer, I can't get that image out of my head. So there's a bit of, it's not gonna happen, I'm fine. And I think a lot of people get through the day like that. There's anger for everything it's taken from me. You know, I can't have children, I lost my job, I lost my hair. That's really, really hard. You feel very sorry for yourself, the chronic pain, the collateral damage. You see people around you having a wonderful life. It's a real mental roller coaster. And the anxiety and depression that comes with it, almost PTSD. Every time I'm called for my mammogram, I'm right back there in that unit. And we call it scanxiety, that fear of recurrence. And then I had hip pain recently and I thought, oh, this, this could be bone mess. And then when a doctor sends you for a scan, you get really worried because they're worried enough to send you for a scan. And that waiting, it's just horrific. You learn to live with it and time helps passed you by. I almost can't remember going through treatment the first time, but I developed an inner strength. I think you either fall in the heap or you say, this is happening to me. I have no choice. I have to move forward. And I wouldn't have done any of the stuff I do now if I'd remained a surgeon. Mm -hmm. I am a different person, but I think medicine trained me because as a doctor, we're very good at putting on a mask. Mm -hmm. You know, it's yeah. acting. Yeah. You're on a ward round presenting a patient and then you're in theatre being, I can save your life. Then you're bollocking a junior. Yeah. Then you're arguing for business case. We get very used to flipping the switch. Mm. But that can get dangerous because I had suicidal depression twice as a consultant, dealing with the stress of telling 10 women a day they had cancer. And nobody knew because I was happy and smiling and putting on the mask. It was really hard when I was going through my diagnosis this, this year and I hadn't told people. And all the PR for the book on the radio, and yes, life is great, and I'm talking about this, and inside, oh my God. And it's finding that balance of giving me time to have the sad breathing, this is really unfair, and then go out and do the job. You know, are there any specific strategies that helped you cope like in your experience and I know that every woman's journey through her diagnosis is very different you know there's so many things outside of you in that room that would influence how you deal with that journey there's so many socioeconomic factors outside of the hospital your support system but if you were to share strategies that helped you personally what would be the top ones then the first thing i would say is find your tribe mm. i was quite active on twitter um, back in 2015, mainly because I did triathlons and baking. By doing all the sport, I could eat all the cake. <laughs> and I was being treated in a hospital where I'd worked, where my husband worked. I wasn't going to wear a wig. I was going to lose my hair. I'd be recognised. And I thought, I don't want people talking about me behind my back. Mm. And I can't not talk about cancer treatment for nine months. So the day after I got my biopsy the first time, my husband and I pressed send on a tweet saying, things are a bit different. I'm coming out. I've got breast cancer. 
And that was one of the best days of my life because I was flooded with information and support from people telling me what to do, what to expect. The stuff the doctors and nurses don't know. What toothpaste to use, what flavored water to use, what cookbook to help. And I found two or three doctors who were having cancer treatment at the same time. Incredible Kate Granger behind the Hello My Name Is campaign. Another chap who sadly died and Trish Greenhouse, who I wrote my first book with. And just for me having other doctors I could talk to who were going through cancer treatment who knew what it was like to be on both sides. And now there are so many forums and groups that you can find someone going through it. And there's an American forum called breastcancer.org. I joined anonymously, but they had groups for people having chemo in January. So you're all going through it at the same time because your family can't get it. I think my husband thought I was having an affair because I'd be messaging people at three in the morning under the duvet pretending I'm asleep. They can't understand the crazy thoughts in your head. Like a friend who died said he was glad when his cancer came back because he could stop waiting for it to happen. Oh no. And I get that completely because that worry is so to have a tribe of people you can talk to, you can share your deepest, darkest fears, secrets, and know you're not alone was everything for me. The second thing for me that helped was actually sharing my story. It all started with a blog back when they were a thing and just writing it down helped me process that emotion. Now you don't need to share it. I think people feel there's a need to share their story and you must tell everybody what's going on in Instagram. You don't need to do anything, but for me, writing it down helped it seem less scary and deal with the emotion on the page so I could then go and cook for dinner or take the rubbish out. And the third thing for me that's really helped this time is just nature. I'm very lucky to live in the countryside and just sitting out my kitchen, looking at the birds on the feeder, going for a swim in the local river, taking the dogs, and exercise. Because when I'm walking or I'm in the gym, I'm just Liz. I forget I've got cancer, I'm just concentrating on something. And I think they're the three things that have really helped me cope. I would actually call those the aspect of cancer care that's often overlooked, but very, very crucial for patient well-being. Doctors tell you what's gonna to happen to you with treatment. My impression of quality of care was doing the right thing at the right time. Perfect scar, evidence-based medicine, all the latest treatment, off you go. The third aspect of quality is the patient experience. And we don't tell you how to cope when you leave our office and we see you in a year. Mm. Yeah, but, 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 but where do I go? And I think it's trying to fill that gap to say, you're going to feel like this and you might have this. And if you have problems with your sex life, that's okay, we can help. And trying to help you get your quality of life back, not just to be living. What women want to know. This is a great bridge to the topic of your book, right? You have a book, The Complete Guide to Breast Cancer. How does it differ from other resources available? So at the time, I bought 10 books written by patients with breast cancer and Dr. Trish Greenhouse, my Twitter friend, bought another 10 because we didn't know what it was like to be a patient despite being two experts ourselves. And we realized there's no one source full of accurate information. I mean, often I do it myself. When you're telling your story, you exaggerate. And it's a bit like TripAdvisor. You only hear the worst. You don't hear the good because people can't be bothered to tell you, oh, I, I'm on some it's absolutely fine. That's not exciting. You know, it's slash poison burn. We just wanted to create one resource that would tell you how you cope, not just mentally, but physically, what to eat, what to do with your family, all the way through from like diagnosis through to death. Because we couldn't find the answers to the questions we had as experts. And it was a lot of hard work, but we're just doing the second edition now because there are 20 new drugs since it got published in 2018, which is incredible. But just, we wanted that legacy to say, we want to help people and we can do this in a different way. And so now you have added author to 
one of your amazing titles and you're also a speaker as well you're an advocate for cancer care can we talk about this transition how did you navigate the transition from being a surgeon to retiring at a young age due to your health earlier you mentioned that you felt a bit lost and it took you about a year can you talk us through that process when I realized my left arm doesn't work properly because of all the surgery and psychologically I couldn't look after cancer patients having had a recurrence and it took six months of bitter back and forth fighting getting letters paying to be seen to go through nhs ill health retirement which i could talk for hours on it it's not an easy process mm. i get the pension i decreed to date so at 43 it's not much so i'd lost my income you know my husband and i don't have children but i was used to having my own income and bringing that in so suddenly our household income is kind of dropped by half i don't have a reason to get out of bed in the morning am i still a doctor what do i do with my days i'm going bored in the house that was really really hard and i started blogging and, and writing the book actually helped trisha and i said let's do this so that kept me occupied for about a year and i was active on twitter just talking about breast cancer things to say look there's an article in the press that this isn't right because People don't understand statistics. A lot of doctors, relative risk, absolute risk, you know, bacon doubles your risk of breast cancer. It doesn't mean it's a 50% chance. And I found publicity through that book meant I was writing articles for the Mail on Sunday and I found I could write for the lay public. So that led to them saying, could you do another article? So that kind of got my name out there as someone who can explain things. And then when I was writing my memoir, Under the Knife, I love writing. I've realized I like writing and I like writing stuff that's not my PhD, where you don't have to have a 200 word sentence. And I discovered I really, really enjoy explaining stuff to people and I love the geeky research behind it. And I wrote my memoir mainly because I wanted to talk about the depression I'd had as a doctor that I was too embarrassed to talk about. Off the back of COVID, people were opening up about the sheer hell they were going through. And Ted publishers rejected it and they said, we won't publish you because you've only got 2,000 followers on Instagram and you don't talk about breast cancer there. At the time, it was just hedgehogs and sewing my own clothes. We need to be able to market you. Come back when you've got 10,000. So in six months, I flogged myself, posting every day, building another community, doing little videos here and there. I got the numbers. They still said no, but then I crowdfunded it with Unbound. And then that led to realizing, oh, the videos are working. And this is another way of, I quite like the videos, but the money you spend getting the lights and editing and film. It takes 10 hours to produce an eight minute video for YouTube. It's insane. But people were saying, have you done a video about this on Instagram? Well, let me scroll back the last two years to see. So YouTube became a legacy to say, right, this is an easy, a library to find the videos. But it does become a bit like a monster that you have to feed. The algorithm works. If you're not publishing every other day, it drops. And it, it's really, really hard. And it's finding that balance between, I can spend all day replying to the 100 comments I get from the podcast and the videos and Instagram, but I'm not exercising or walking the dog or doing things for me. And it's really easy to remember, you don't get paid for any of this. But it's really important and finding that balance. But it's just kind of grown. And like word of mouth, one talk led to another talk led to another talk. And it's something I really, really enjoy. And I feel I'm still being useful. And whilst people want me to do it, I will carry on as long as I can. But it took time. And would you say now that you've successfully made that transition? Are you happy with where you are now? I feel I've got a good career. I think it'd be nice if I could get paid a bit for it. People think you're a doctor, you're getting paid. Think, no, I'm on a tight pension. It's really, really hard. I like what I do. I love the writing. I'm about to start my third book. Wow, congratulations. Thank you very much. 
yeah, that should be coming out spring 2025 because it takes a long time for a book to go to market. Yeah. But I now volunteer. I was looking after hedgehogs this morning in a rescue shelter and I river swim. And I think I'm a far more balanced person now. I mean, I'm lucky I don't work than I ever was as a full-time surgeon. You say you're lucky you don't work. This is work. I know this is the thing. I actually do work full-time. I don't think it's work because you're not in an office, you're not being paid. I've got time in my life to do things that I want for me. And I actually, I do really enjoy what I do. That's all that matters, that... There's balance, yeah. It's crazy that every journalist in the UK seems to have my name. It's like yesterday I was on BBC Breakfast talking about pregnancy and breast cancer, then on Vanessa Feltz's show talking about surgical formula one lists. And it's really exciting just being able to have that kind of role. But I'm always scared of my family becoming an own. I want to keep them private. I don't want to be a big TV adopter. I'm happy just dipping in and out and then I can kind of keep a, a bit of my life private. I mean, in your own right, your name is out there for a reason. You know, all of the years of being a surgeon, training, sharing your story, being this beacon of strength and resilience for women going through this journey. You know, as the African proverb says, you can't really hide a goldfish in a, in a clear water bowl, you know? I love that. That's it. I wasn't a goldfish until I got cancer. I know that I help far more people globally than I ever did treating 100 cancers a year where I used to work. And it's incredible to feel that you can reach all these people and help them. And I, I love that. So you can create impact beyond the four walls of a hospital. Yeah, it's incredible. And to see so many other doctors getting on board and interacting with the public. We're not scary, we want to know. Exactly. Well done, well done. Something that you openly discuss is topics like, you know, sex in the context of cancer. From your personal stories, you've talked about, you know, the, the libido, the sex drive goes down because of all of the, the treatment and the chemo. So what is the thing that you would say to patients that are worried about their libido when they get a cancer diagnosis? Well, I would say to you, have you ever seen a boss talk to a patient about sex? No. I never have. I've done colorectal surgery where I've told men they may get retrograde ejaculation and they may not get a full erection. I've never told them how to help with that. I've never heard a colleague or a boss talk to a patient about how to get their sex life back after treatment. And every single treatment we do can affect someone's sex life. An appendix scar, a colostomy, an anal fissure, you know, but anything that affects your body image or your mental image of how you are can affect your libido. It was two reasons why I started talking about this as long as my own personal journey. A young girl with a stoma asked her consultant how to have sex on a one night stand. And he had no idea because he was like, he couldn't imagine having sex with a stoma. And she said, you know, but now you can get high-waisted crotchless panties that you can stay on and that you can keep the stoma covered. And I met a 60-year-old oncology nurse who'd had head and neck cancer. She'd had her tongue removed and filled in with a flap. And she said it took her five years to learn the only time she could snork her husband was in the shower because fake saliva was just ruined the mood. And I used to tell patients, you might get some hot flushes and a bit of a dry vagina, it'll settle down. And then you are thrown into an instant menopause overnight. You still find your partner attractive, but you don't get turned on. You don't get physically wet. Nothing happens when you watch Fleabag. It's like, I would rather have a cup of tea because I have no sex hormones at all. My vagina is like a tube lined with sandpaper. Why wasn't I told about this? And why didn't I tell my patients about this? We're very prudish. We don't like talking about it. How do you talk to a patient when they may not be talking to their partner about it? And I think if you were treating anybody and their sex life could have been impacted by their illness, you just need to say, how's sex? That's it. 
I would now t say to tell patients, we know that breast cancer treatment can affect your intimacy and your sex life. If this is something you'd like to talk about, I know someone can help if it's not you. There are hospitals to have like a, a sex bag in their clinic with safe lube, like yes, and vaginal dilators and vibrators and dildos. Go and have an explore. There are ways of getting back we can help. But just ask them, how sex? Every single patient with breast cancer, it will affect their, their dating, their sex life, their intimacy. And I used to, when I went back, I did it at the one year follow up. And sometimes the look of relief on that couple's face, oh, thank God someone's talking about it because I didn't know where to go. And I suppose this is the power of your perspective on both sides, right? You work in a huge team of people. You may not feel comfortable talking about sex, but make sure someone on that team is. So I didn't realize the hospital where I worked had a sexual counselor for cancer patients until I went back after three years to do a talk. No one told me, I'm in my own little breast cancer bit. I don't know what's going on around. So go and find out, ask your bosses, who can we send our patients to for advice about sex? Who is telling them that they should be exercising? So this is an interesting one. Who is telling them what to eat? I had a paper in The Lancet in October. There are 100,000 hits on Amazon for cancer diet. A lot of them are written by doctors, but they're doctors of physiotherapy or chiropractors in the States, but people assume they're telling the truth. A lot of them are just crack BS with people selling money. We don't tell people what to eat, but that's the biggest thing they are searching for, for that magic bullet that will cure them. And I didn't know any of this until I was suddenly a patient searching for information myself what women want to know. It just highlights the value that you are bringing to this space, especially for women who are going through this journey. This is big. This responsibility, right, is big in other ways because on the one hand, you train for, you know, 20-something years to, to climb to the highest rank that any medic could in a, in a hospital. And you know, you were forced out of that earlier than you hoped. And you have this big job that, in my opinion, is bigger, much bigger than the four walls of a hospital. So what are your future goals in terms of advocacy, education and supporting others with breast cancer? Because I can tell that you're very passionate and the passion is not just the experience of a patient, but it's also the reflection of I was one of the doctors who really missed out on addressing this, this, this aspect of your care. What are your goals? Tell me. World domination. No, I'm joking. I want to carry on doing what I'm doing and reach as many people as I possibly can. And ideally earn a bit of money so I can pay for people to help me do what I do so I can claim my time back because it's hard. A tiny part of me wishes I could just stop and forget I've ever had cancer. Because when you talk about it every day, it's always there. But I love what I do. I want to carry on writing and doing the videos and growing a platform and improving the podcast. So I kind of become known as the go-to person for breast cancer advice. I get recognized at airports. People ask me for selfies. And it's like, I don't think you really realize the impact you have. Because I just live in a tiny village in Suffolk, mainly in my muddy dog walking clothes. Think, Oh, wow. People actually do read what I write. This is quite weird. That's the problem with social media, because you're just in your little office at home typing away. And it's like, people think I'm a celebrity. They, I'm, I'm not really. The thing I love that cancer gave me was an identity. Because before I was diagnosed, I was a consultant surgeon. I wore maxi dresses and blazers and high heels. And that was my look. And then I spent 18 months in tracksuits having chemo. And then you wake up at 41 thinking, what do I wear? Because my small town is a Dorothy Perkins where my niece shops and a country casuals where my mum shops. And it's helped me find 
a look. The hair, the glasses, the yellow. It's like, oh, I have a thing. This is really cool. No one, I mean, no one can pull it off. From the, the funky hair colours to the bright jumpers. I mean, you're just an, an actual vibe. It's so nice. Like, and I don't feel I'm going to be 50 next year. It's crazy. But I kind of feel I'm enjoying myself now. And I noticed the colours of the nails as well. Yes, they're glittery for Christmas. Other colours are available. I didn't wear yellow before chemo. Because it completely changes your skin tone when your hair comes back grey. Life's too short. Just wear what you like. Amazing, amazing. I suppose you answered it because I was going to ask what do you hope your legacy would be in the field of breast cancer awareness? Not only world domination, but you want to be known as the go-to person when it comes to cancer care, especially in, in women, right? I used to tell patients, don't Google. I will tell you what you need to know. Here's the pile of leaflets, go home. I never read them. You go on Google, you go on your phone, whatever search engine it is. We all, apart from my mum, who didn't want to know anything, we do it. And I wish we could say to digitally signpost every single patient to say, right, you are going to go on Google. Here is a list of sensible websites, apps, influencers, books, podcasts, YouTube channels to read to have safe, sensible advice. And how do you get that? You ask the patients at the one-year follow-up clinic. Who do you follow? What have you found helpful? And we can somehow email that with a QR code to say, you're going to be terrified when you go home. Your family are going to ask you what the doctor said. And you won't remember because you're still going, holy flip, I've got cancer. To digitally signpost people to save resources. And for me to be one of those resources to say, right, here you are. I'm going to be the friend in your pocket that's guiding you, along with other incredible people doing amazing work. That is what I would love. I just got goosebumps. I have no doubt that you will be that person, actually. Doing that, it's such a quick and easy project for a junior doctor to do. Sit in an outpatient clinic, ask patients what they found. There you are, collect it six months later, give it to patients. Was it helpful? When I was diagnosed, I thought there'd be apps to help me cope with chemo, how to track my side effects, with drugs. Nothing, apart from McMillan app, but no one told me, even though I was being treated at the McMillan Centre, because doctors don't Google what patients are Googling for. If you are working in, in the cancer field, breast cancer, go on a breast cancer forum, go and have a look and see what kind of questions patients are asking. Like, is it safe to have sex during chemo because I'm scared my husband's hair will fall out? And that will tell you what your patients really want to know. And you may not be the person to tell them, but make sure someone in the team is. That is the power of technology these days. That's the power of, you know, digital transformation and also the rise of health tech startups, right? And I, I, I really think this is a space that you should explore. I do worry about health tech. I've been approached by quite a few people who are trying to find new ways to help women examine their breasts. There's like a little ultrasound probe that you have with a phone that you go up and down and up and down or silicon pads to make it easier. And I feel they are inventing a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. The problem is women don't examine their breasts. Your hands are all a breast surgeon needs. You with a little ultrasound probe isn't gonna be any good. It takes months to get that training. You're inventing a gadget because you think women want it, but actually if they're not examining their breasts monthly, they're not gonna use the gadget. It'll be like the exercise bike that you put clothes on. If you actually even look really deeply into the, the founders of some of these health tech startups, they've had no experience in medicine whatsoever, right? And it's like this, this thing has been tested on a silicone breast model in a laboratory and now it's going on to people. So I'm a part of the Independent Cancer Patients Voice Advocacy Group. We're the patients that go on trials to make sure everything's above board. Ask patients what we need. Don't create something because you think you'll make a bit of money when no one's going to use it. It's and it's that that's what worries me. Like apps, everyone wants an app these days. But actually, what I want is an app that will do this. So uh, there was a, an app talking about chemo side effects. It said one of the questions was, "Do you have constipation?" If you've got irritable bowel syndrome, then constipation may be going once a day. For some people, it's going once a week. 
diarrhea could mean going 10 times a day. It could be going twice a day. Exactly. And that's why you need to say, are you opening your bowels more than five times a day? Because constipation means different things. And this understanding what patients need and what they mean. Well, that's why we need you, Liz. Don't leave it into the hands of people who cannot empathize or relate to this situation. You know, you're in this perfect space where you have the professional training you have the personal experience you're passionate about creating change do not leave this opportunity liz we are begging you i will rally to find the support that you need but really i'm rooting for you well done well done and thank you so so much for being a voice for women going through this your strength and your resilience through this process is really inspiring even for me that has not gone through this process but let alone for women who are going through it at the moment so thank you for all of the work that you're doing liz oh thank you for asking me to chat today it's been brilliant thank you so much liz and I'll speak to you soon. What women want to know. Wow, a very big thank you again to Dr. Lisa Reardon for coming on the show today and sharing her insights, not just from a professional perspective, but also from a personal perspective. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Dr. Liz. You can find all of Dr. Liz's information in the description bar if you're watching on YouTube, the links to her social media handle and all of the work she's doing. She's published two books and she's writing the third. And so if there's any way that you can support her, if you also believe that the information that Dr. Liz O'Reardon shares on her platforms will be valuable to someone you know, whether it's a friend, a colleague or a family member, please do share it with them. A big thank you to you for tuning into the show today. If you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to leave your comments. I love reading them and responding to them. Let me know what did you enjoy the most about today's conversation and what other topics would you love for me to explore on the show? If you're listening as a podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. Your feedback not only helps me improve, but it also helps other women to find us. And don't keep us a secret. Share what women want to know with your network but not just the women in your life, the men as well. You can also find us on every social media platform, so make sure to follow along. That's our show for today. Remember, your health matters and it's okay to talk about it. Until next time, I'm your host, Dr. Adana, and this is What Women Want to Know.